0: Well, if you wanted like to know how many chicken wings are going to be consumed during the Super Bowl weekend, look no further than the National Chicken Council's annual report. Americans are set to eat 1.33 billion chicken wings. That is actually up 2% from 2016. These numbers, of course, for 2017. 1.3 billion chicken wings is a lot of chicken. And here to tell us how it all happens is Charlie Morrison. He is the chairman and the chief executive of Wingstop. And also joining us here in studio, Stacey Peterson, the chief experience officer for Wingstop. And they are in our New York studios coming from Dallas. All right, Charlie, 1.3 billion chicken wings. It, it, that It's a little hard to comprehend right now. How did you get into this? You, I know, have done stints at Boston Market. Uh, pizza was also in your past. How did you combine all of this to bring it to Wingstop?
2: Well, I was uh, honored with the opportunity to lead this brand about six years ago uh, when I started with Wingstop. And it's a brand that's been around since the mid-90s, was founded in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where we're headquartered and we realized what a great opportunity we had in front of us we are all about Was this when work capital came in? This uh this is right be- when work came capital in work capital came that's in and right. then you joined
0: mm-hmm. the because they thought you would be good to do this.
2: Yes, well that's okay. that they thought and so far so good. Uh, yeah, we so wings as a center of the plate item uh were something was something that was really not thought of uh many years ago but now You look at the success of this brand and the fact that people are passionate about wings. It is great for the Super Bowl. We'll sell probably 14 to 15 million wings just on that day alone. Uh, But really, it's an occasion
0: item for anybody for any eating occasion. What, uh, okay, you gave me the number of of wings. Can you put that into some context in terms of compared to a normal weekend or other holidays that may uh, make that more popular? Sure. In
2: some cases, we'll do as much business on that day as we might do in an entire week on average for the chain so it is our biggest day of the year one of the very big days uh for Wingstop. wings are the number one consumed item for the super bowl and uh we're one of the largest chains out there that's uh, providing access to those for our for our fans
0: stacy peterson uh, come in uh, for just a second and tell us about the uh the new ways in which people can consume their food one of them is using the alexa voice uh ordering system Tell us about that venture and how you put that together.
1: That's right, digital ordering has been a focus for us, and last year we really tried to extend the convenience to our guests. So instead of requiring them to download our app, which they can do, we decided to bring ordering to them. So if they're on Facebook Messenger, Twitter Messenger, Alexa, even now GM OnStar Marketplace, they can order wings directly from the apps or platforms that they choose to be on.
0: Okay, but I'm just curious—is was there a, a an, just a little insight into the negotiation? Because you know, people may be listening and thinking, "Gee, you know, I have a product. I'd like to figure out how to get included in the Alexa artificial intelligence world." What were those conversations like? What were some of the concerns and what were some of the challenges?
1: Well, in a, for us, integration is a challenge. We want our franchise operators, when an order comes through any digital channel, to look the same, feel the same. We don't want them to care where it came from. And so integrating that into our point of sale where at the restaurant they have a consistent process was really key to us unleashing all of these platforms.
0: And is the data that is uh, put together and, and, and stored about the customer, I mean, is that data that then can be used for ordering uh, you know ordering and as well as supply chain operations
1: that's right there's a lot that we can learn from our customers um and understand more of their behavior so that we can be more relevant to them
0: all right charlie uh, the menu at the wing stop i understand that many analysts say the fact that it's simple is positive for the company can you speak to that
2: I think that's a testament to any great restaurant concept is to keep it simple, and especially in today's focused environment where you have menus that are focused on certain products. That's what we love about Wingstop. We have uh, chicken wings, fries, and sides. That makes up 90% of what we sell. Since our founding in 1994, uh, we started with eight flavors and added three over the years. We, we really innovate Uh, as Stacey talked about, through technology more so than we do through flavors and products. And we think that's the way restaurants are going to be well positioned into the future. You've also got an initiative
0: uh, outside the United States, franchising there. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, we operate in nine countries around the world today with signed agreements for 13 total countries, a little over 100 restaurants, and growing very rapidly. We believe that this will position this brand to be a top 10 global brand ultimately uh, one day in the future because chicken and chicken wings are the most consumed protein all around the world. What about the cost of the prices? Have they're prices pretty changed? comparable. No, they're pretty comparable. Last year was a tough year in the U.S. Uh, for chicken wings. The commodity spiked, but outside the U.S., very similar
0: uh, economics to what we see here. Are we going to get kiosks uh, in more and more Wingstop uh, restaurant locations, Stacy?
1: Quite possibly. We would love to um, expedite and automate the pickup experience. So along with kiosks, we could envision a day where you order digitally, you get a, a message sent to you that your order's ready, and you pick it up from a locker, you get a code, you scan in, you locker opens, you take your food and go. So we'd like to continue that digital experience inside the restaurant.
0: Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, Stacey Peterson is the chief experience officer, and Charlie Morrison is the chairman and the chief executive of Wingstop. Oil. Oil price is down by about a half a percent right now on the NYMEX. WTI trades at $64.13 a barrel. Here to tell us more about the world of energy is Javier Blas, our chief energy correspondent for Bloomberg Intelligence. And he joins us from London. And you can follow Javier on Twitter at Javier Blas2. All right, Javier Blas2, before we get to oil, I just want you to maybe speak a little bit about a photo that, courtesy of your handiwork I was able to see on Twitter having to do with Davos and the crowd that was looking to get into the main hall where President Donald Trump eventually gave his speech. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? I, I was hoping that you have forgotten about it. Not at all. I thought that was really something because it- it- the crush of-, of people to get in, uh, as you described it, I think is sort of like uh, a rock concert.
3: Uh, Yeah, it was about an hour before President Trump was delivering the speech at at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. And um, I I have been in many Davos meetings, and I have never seen that lobby area in front of the Congress hall where all the big speeches happen. uh, So packed an hour before a speech, and I have seen people like Macron, Merkel. uh, You know, you you don't see that. And and it kind of felt almost like... uh, a few years back, I should say, a couple of decades back, being a teenager and going to a rock concert, and you know, all the teenagers just. Uh, being uh, together, crashing into the doors, and so I tweeted that you know it was quite extraordinary, and it felt like uh, um, teenagers going into a concert. But the main difference is, were CEOs and billionaires, some of the most powerful uh, men and women on the planet in the in the world of business and finance. So that was quite something. And to my surprise, uh, I was actually sleeping uh, overnight. Uh, President Trump, I suppose, it was on Air Force One, uh, saw the tweet somehow and uh, retweeted, and then I wake up with. About twenty five thousand notifications on my Twitter timeline to my shock.
0: Well, all right. So now that you've become uh, sort of a, a, twi- a Twitter poster child, uh, you know every utterance is is going to be picked over. So be careful here when we talk about energy, and maybe we can kind of link this to uh, President Donald Trump because one of his uh, signature uh, uh, sort of uh, perspectives. Is to allow more drilling in the Arctic uh, National uh, Wildlife Refuge, to uh, push more drilling off the coast uh, of the United States, both the East and the the West Coast. And also, uh, he's been a big uh, cheerleader for uh, domestic oil production. What is the, the change in U.S. oil production doing to global investments?
3: Well, what we are seeing is the U.S. production uh, almost at 10 million barrels a day. That's the highest since 1970. Actually, U.S. production is just within a whisker of that level. It was put today by the Energy Information Administration that's the statistical arm of the Department of Energy at 9.92 million barrels a day. So it's just going to be 10 million barrels a day within the next two or three weeks. Uh, and and that is what is uh, being uh, di- 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 told by President Trump of energy dominance. Uh, actually, President Trump probably has done very little for, for achieving these 10 million barrels a day. Yes, is deregulating the industry and is lowering taxes, but that will not have an impact until... Uh, Probably a few months from now, with the taxation, probably we can see more investment, and certainly the deregulation of the sector and allowing um, drilling offshore uh, of the United States. That's going to take years, if not decades, to increase production of the country. But uh, certainly, we are seeing a big increase in uh, production in the United States, and that's one of the reasons that despite all the efforts by OPEC by cutting production, we still see oil prices really struggling to break new ground, and we saw Brent prices, the the European benchmark, uh, jumping about $70, but that was really short-lived because people are starting to pay attention that uh, while OPEC is cutting production, shale producers in Texas and elsewhere in the United States are really ramping output.
0: All right. So, what does that tell you about a forecast? Is it just difficult to predict what? I mean, it's always difficult to predict what the future price of anything's going to be. But uh, we're going to get results from Royal Dutch Shell tomorrow, and uh, we'll also get results from Chevron and Exxon. Uh, for the remainder of the week. What what can you tell us about the future of oil prices?
3: Well, I think that we're going to have very good results for for the three companies that you mentioned. We have Royal Dutch Shell reporting uh, before the opening of the market tomorrow morning here in London. And we have uh, Exxon and and Chevron doing likewise before the opening of the market in New York on Friday. Uh, Q4 should be a good month for all the oil companies prices were up we have good production numbers from everyone so i i am expecting that probably we on a quarterly basis probably we're going to see the strongest quarter since at least mid 2014 in terms of oil prices for 2018 uh, clearly we are seeing a big push uh, towards the upside from OPEC production cuts led by Saudi Arabia with is cutting even more than he, he said that he was going to do but at the same time we're going to have a ceiling for from the U.S. shale producers, which they are going to really pump a lot more oil than probably the market was expecting only two, three, four months ago. So probably what we're going to see prices is in a, in a very narrow range, probably with a $60 floor because of OPEC production cuts. But uh, any time that we go above 70 maybe $75 for Brem, we're going to see a huge incentive for U.S. Produ- producers to, to, to pump more. And, and certainly the price will be capped there.
0: Thank you very much for being with us. Javier Blas is our Chief Energy Correspondent for Bloomberg Intelligence. You can follow him on Twitter at Javier Blas 2 And you can also check out his photographs uh, from his attendance at the Davos World Economic Forum last week. Uh, interesting photographs and uh, some images of the uh, excitement that was generated by the arrival and the speech of President Donald Trump. Well, if you're thinking about purchasing an automobile or a vehicle, chances are you should place a call to Scott Painter. He is the founder of FAIR, but he's also the former founder of True Car, and he has a history in the automobile industry as a, a disruptor. And he joins us now from Santa Monica. Scott, thank you very much for being with us. Maybe just give people a little bit of your uh, the short bio, because you've been doing this since you were in school.
4: Well, I've definitely focused on trying to improve the way that we all buy and shop for and ultimately own cars. So what we've created at FAIR is an app that represents a totally new way to get a car. It's digital. It's all on your phone. It's completely flexible in that customers can actually see the car they want and walk away without a commitment to a long-term purchase decision or ownership contract and it's designed to be simple what we offer is an all-in monthly payment that provides the car a warranty roadside assistance standard maintenance and we even now offer month-to-month auto insurance so it's designed to be sort of like an itunes account for your car
0: is it similar to a long-term rental or even a short-term rental for an automobile
4: yeah it's not a rental agreement it's not a lease It was created with a deep understanding of how both work. It is an entirely new type of contract. It's really – it represents uh, a new way to get access to mobility. Um, It's clear that modern customers want simplicity, savings, and flexibility.
0: All right, but having having that in mind, what uh, can you walk us through what exactly happens? Because you mentioned that, all right, you've got an app on your phone. You'd like to drive uh, from where you are, Santa Monica, I don't know, to uh, San Diego. What happens when you pick up your phone?
4: Sure. The way that the app works is as soon as you download the app, it does ask you to scan your driver's license because you're going to be driving our vehicle and you need to be a registered legal driver. And so we're looking to actually validate your driver's license. We're also looking for ability to repay. So unlike a car loan or a lease where you actually have to have good credit or a long payment history, as long as we can detect that you have the ability to repay or to afford the car, we go ahead and digitally link you either to your bank account or a credit card, and then you begin to subscribe effectively to that car. And so you're shopping from cars that are all for sale at local dealers, and we're simply a better way to get that car, and we're an alternative to traditional financing in the sense that we are not lending you money. We're just giving you access to the car that you want. Once you select the vehicle inside the app, you can either have that vehicle brought to you, or you can pick it up at your local dealership. But the entire process happens digitally in the app. In fact, you even sign the agreement with your finger. There's no negotiating with a dealer or no back and forth or confrontation. We effectively buy the car and simultaneously provide it to you through that new agreement.
0: What is, what is your venture with Uber? How is that tied together?
4: Well, what we're announcing today is that we have completed the acquisition of Uber's exchange leasing portfolio and entered into an exclusive partnership with Uber on a national basis. And it turns out that Uber drivers are just like modern consumers. They also want the same simplicity, savings and flexibility. And so we provide Uber the technology so that if you're an Uber driver and you download the Uber app and you indicate that you don't have a vehicle, that's when you'll be introduced their go forward partner to provide those drivers with that flexible option and it really is about an extension of their commitment to their driver community and it allows uber to be focused on its core competency which is growing ride sharing and it, it allows fair and the experts on our team to focus on our core competency which is really providing these kind of flexible ownership options through a totally digital platform
0: scott how much does this cost
4: Or leasing vehicles, this represents about a fifty percent savings over a traditional rental. Now, that's if you're, a, a-
0: if you're if if you're an Uber driver.
4: Well, it turns out whether you're an Uber driver renting a car or whether you're a consumer renting a car.
0: Oh, okay. All fine. right. Just wanted to make it make that clear. So, for example, let's say you wanted to drive from San, uh, Santa Monica down to San Diego. What does it cost to actually uh, complete this transaction? Just quickly.
4: Well are really for longer term use so we, we're we're really building the product so that consumers can keep the car for as long or as little they okay want. let's
0: say you wanted it for a month just give me a figure
4: yeah so it would be about half the cost of a rental so traditionally if you were going to rent a car for a month that we, you were going to use for ride sharing that might be 150 to 200 dollars a week so maybe 400 dollars right. a month this is going to be half of that
0: got it and we got to leave it there comes it's... with We got to leave it there. Scott Painter, thank you very much. He is the founder of FAIR. They're based in Santa Monica. Well, coming up today, we've got the results from Facebook as well as Microsoft. Tomorrow, we'll be getting earnings from Apple and Alphabet as well as Amazon. And here to help us understand what we can expect is Michael Scanlon. He is Portfolio Manager for Manulife Asset Management. He's based in Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport and 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. Michael, uh, great to have you with us. Let's begin with Facebook, if we can. This is a company that, at least in annual terms, is doing $36 billion in revenue and putting $15 billion in its pocket. That's the net income. Tell us what you look for from Facebook.
5: Well, good morning and thanks for having me. I think with Facebook, you know, expectations that results are going to be strong again tonight. I think uh, probably more of the focus will actually be on the the commentary that's given on the call, just in light of some of the announcements they made a couple weeks back in terms of de-emphasizing third party and more emphasizing people's personal network of posts.
0: Well, this will be what to get them to stay more frequently, or stay have a longer period of time that they would stay on Facebook, and also to uh, blunt the criticism having to do with uh, news and information that is uh, perhaps not uh, real or is not backed by uh, <laughs> anyone who actually knows anything about the topics they're to, they're uh, posting about.
5: Exactly. Yeah. So you know, the argument here is if if you're in the bull camp on Facebook, which we own the stock in the John Hancock Balance Fund. Is that the any decline in terms of just ad load that you're seeing on there will be offset by positive pricing? And you know if they're reducing the amount of space that they have available to advertisers, that ultimately the price of that advertising should increase uh, and offset any decline in terms of uh, growth and ad load.
0: Okay. All right. So that's Facebook. Turn your attention now to Microsoft. There we're talking about a $100 billion revenue company. Uh, they do $26 billion in profit. What are you looking for with Microsoft?
5: With Microsoft, the focus continues to be on this transition, which uh, you know really gained steam once Satya Nadella came into to power at Microsoft, taking over the CEO role, CEO role from Steve Ballmer. Uh, in that, you know, it's this whole transition to the cloud, right? Their commercial cloud business has outperformed every metric that the company has laid out uh, that the analyst community was expecting, and it continues to be on a really strong growth trajectory. So I think people will be continued to focus on what the revenue growth trajectory looks like there and just what the margin profile in the commercial cloud business looks like.
0: Do you think that there'll be any interest in an increase in the dividend? The dividend now is about 1.8% of Microsoft.
5: So not as much focus on the dividend, you know, with this uh, tax reform package that we're getting, and obviously Microsoft and a lot of the other big cap tech names, which you mentioned in the introduction, are are primary beneficiaries here, where it's going to free up a lot of cash that they can put to work. So with Microsoft, there is some expectation that they will increase the uh, repurchase authorization or the regular amount of buyback that they've been doing, which will, will be a nice incremental tailwind for the stock.
0: All right. Well, the shares of Microsoft right now they're up a dollar twenty-four. The stock has gained nearly ten percent so far this year. All right. Look forward to tomorrow. Uh, would you like to begin with Apple, the iPhone maker, because they'll be reporting uh, their results tomorrow?
5: So it's surprising. That, you know, the last handful of weeks here, there have been some negative supply chain data points that have been coming out and commentaries around iPhone X builds. Uh, Apple's stock has underperformed tech more recently you know it continues to be very attractively valued they uh, they're obviously investing a lot with the data they, with the release they put out after the tax reform package uh, but from a total return perspective you know you're getting a very nice buyback in 35 plus billion a year plus the dividends so you're kind of getting a 6% type capital return before they grow their net income or the multiple gets re-rated higher so we still like apple in the portfolio um, and you know, again, the commentary will be interesting with some of these negative data points.
0: Indeed, uh, Apple shares down about one percent in the month of January. And just to note, here's the scale, right? Two hundred and twenty-nine billion dollars in sales, and they make have a profit of forty-eight billion. And they sell hardware. That's a kind That's of amazing, amazing isn't yeah?
5: it? You look at the Yeah. And not only that, you look at the stock price. So the stock's at about $166 on a net cash basis. They have just under $30 per share in net cash. So this stock trades at a, you know, 4.5 point discount to the S&P 500 uh, and even more than that if you were to adjust for the cash, which, you know, more and more of that should be coming back to shareholders.
0: Why do you think that it trades at this discount? I mean, is it always because there's the footnote or the asterisk that says, gee, you know, they rely so much on the iPhone and yada, yada, yada?
5: It's exactly that. And it, it, there's cycles within the iPhone. This iPhone X cycle is expected to be a very big refresh cycle. Uh, so there's a bit more, not to call, maybe boom bust isn't a, a, the right description for it, but from year to year, there is a bit of a, a bump and drop in earnings uh, at the net income level just because of the units that are sold. I mean, most people refresh their phone on kind of a two year basis. Uh, so it's just a little bit of an up and down, uh, which you know, results on a lower multiple.
0: Okay, let's turn your attention to Alphabet now. Alphabet, of course, the parent company of Google, talking about a $100 billion company that uh, has uh, about a quarter of that as profit, $23 billion worth of profit on an annual basis. What are you going to look for from Google?
5: So Google continues to be our largest position in the portfolio. Uh, You know, when you look at this company, there just seems to be a very clear runway to north of 20% FX neutral revenue growth going forward. Uh, There's still, you know, broadly speaking, a tremendous amount of global advertising that is still in traditional forms, be it TV, print, uh, that needs to come digital. And you know, a name like Google is going to be a primary beneficiary there. Obviously, there'll be some others as well. Um, But for Google to continue to grow on this north of $100 billion base of revenues, uh, it's just extraordinary. And when you look at the multiple, it doesn't trade at all that much of a premium to the market, uh, especially when you adjust for the nearly $140 a share that they have in cash.
0: All right, I'll give you a chance now for Amazon. Uh, Amazon, $161 billion a year in revenue, but they're not interested in profits, are they?
5: Uh, That's always the knock on the stock, right, is that, uh, you know, Amazon doesn't throw a whole lot to the bottom line. With this company, when you look at it longer term and you you discount the potential cash flow, I mean, if they ever took their foot off the gas in terms of the investments, there would be an extraordinary flow through. Now, you're hard-pressed to fault them for the investments that they've made because they have generated such extraordinary revenue growth. Uh, And I think you're going to see that in this holiday season. You know, they put out a release talking about prime uh, membership and new prime offerings that were adopted during the holiday season. And all points, uh, everything points to a very, very robust holiday season for them. And then the AWS business continues to be on a nice trajectory and generates lots of cash flow for them.
0: Thanks very much. Michael Scanlon is portfolio manager, Manulife Asset Management, joining us from Boston.